Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! You're listening to Left to Our Own Devices, the podcast dedicated to everything product security. Okay, here we go. Our guest today is Rick Driggers, Critical Infrastructure Cyber Lead at Accenture Federal Services. Rick has 30 years of federal government and military experience and is playing a key role in developing cybersecurity solutions designed to protect the USA's critical infrastructure. Before Accenture, he held key positions at CISA, the National Security Council, and the U.S. Air Force. We can't wait to hear his story. Rick, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks, David. It's great to be here. So please give us some background into your journey from being a special tactics combat controller in the U.S. Air Force to CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and to your current role as Critical Infrastructure Cyber Lead at Accenture Federal Services. Uh, Sure. I'll make an assumption that the listeners know what a combat controller does. If you don't know, you can certainly go and look that up on the web. But, you know, I went I went straight into the military out of high school. I didn't have a lot of college options. I've been living on my own for a couple of years before I graduated high school and was just really looking for a new beginning, looking for a new challenge and to be independent. I was doing some couch surfing and things of that nature to get through high school. And so being in the military was really one of the best decisions I ever made and joining into combat control. It's not one of those things that you can just sign up for. You have to try out. You know, my initial class started with about 120 or so students. We graduated eight. And then those eight of us spent the next year and a half going from school to school to school, from, you know, jump school to dive school to eventually combat control school, and then eventually our unit. I deployed all over the world and really enjoyed being a combat controller. I really enjoyed being a part of a team where I had some autonomy because I was in special operations. It wasn't the rigor of the rest of the military. And so that was good for me, but it also taught me how to do a lot of different things from an interpersonal perspective because we had to, you know, as a combat controller, I was getting assigned to a bunch of different types of teams. I mean, you had to build rapport. You had to build those partnerships. You had to build that teamwork and those relationships. And then I got pretty severely injured in 1999. It was a training jump, but bottom line is I I broke the bottom part of my femur off. That was uh, repaired (laughs) by the the Air Force, but they eventually medically boarded me in January of 2001. After that, I was a contractor for a while for about nine months. And then of course, 9-11 happened. Once that happened, I started looking for ways to get back in. They said because of my medical condition, I couldn't get back in. So I started looking at other special mission units. I started looking at contracting jobs and things of that nature and had a couple things lined up. But then I found out that I had a nephew who was five years old and he was down in Florida. He was in custody of the Department of Children and Families and had been really since he was born. So I went down there and took immediate custody of him. And of course, that changed 
really the entire trajectory of my life and my priorities at that time. So I uh, started looking for government jobs, something a little bit more permanent, a little bit more stable. And I found really a perfect role for me at the Joint Personnel Recovery Agency, where I was the chief of, of current ops. I was there for about a year. Then they were standing up the Department of Homeland Security. There were a lot of opportunities there. So I ended up going over to DHS in September 2003 when that stood up. Kind of a funny story. I was supposed to be working in the Homeland Security Operations Center, which is now the National Operations Center. I was supposed to be working there as a senior watch officer, which I was well qualified to do. But I wasn't on the list when I showed up. So they sent me down to the Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Remember, this is the beginning of DHS, right? It's the wild, wild west. So I showed up down there. They asked me if I was an analyst. I said no. And then they sent me down to the uh, collection management division where I was the fifth person to show up. They had nobody that was really focused on intelligence collection management, and they asked me to do it. So I did. And I got on Google. (laughs) I typed in intelligence collection management. And it took me to Army Field Manual 34-2. I read that, got up the courage to call over to the agency to see if they could help me. And I ended up talking to a guy named John Brennan. And I didn't know who John Brennan was at the time. I called him, left a message. He called me back, asked me what I was doing, and then proceeded to tell me that it's pretty obvious I had no clue what I was doing. But he sent me over a bunch of resources, a bunch of government officials and some contractors to really help us stand up the collection management apparatus that's at DHS today. I was there for about three years, and then I moved over to what is now the Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency. And I remained there for really the last part of my career, the last 15, 16 years of my career. And I really enjoyed it because it was a complex mission space. It was just beginning. It involved all of these partnerships across industry with other government, federal agencies, as well as state and local you know, we had significant, tremendous challenges in this space. And we were pretty focused on physical security at the beginning. And then really in 2009, started really ramping up the cybersecurity, not just for federal governments, but also looking more broadly at the critical infrastructure mission and partnering with industry. Wow, that is some journey. Fascinating. So always amazing to see how the personal interwines with the professional. So Rick, as someone who has been both a practitioner and in the position of setting governmental guidelines and policies, where do you see in general cybersecurity maturity and readiness today in the critical infrastructure arena? Well, you know, where I see it now is we have a lot of work to do, right? Really across all sectors. That said, I do think we've made significant progress over the last several years. You know, if I'm looking at an organization's cybersecurity posture, through a maturity and a readiness lens, I think that really allows you the flexibility to make adjustments based on emerging threats and risk. I mean, that's a, a lot better than playing whack-a-mole with vulnerabilities, which unfortunately a lot of organizations do. But looking at cybersecurity maturity and readiness really across your enterprise allows you to focus on people, process, and technology, and not just the technology piece. I think most important is probably the readiness of people and ensuring that everyone really understands that they have a role to play, all employees have a role to play, and a responsibility for the security of the network and the systems that are actually in the organization. I think cybersecurity should really be viewed as a risk that needs to be managed and reduced and not just a singular issue that's on the plate of a lot of other issues. And I think also, just on that note, that when people look at the cybersecurity issue, they tend to think of the IT side and they, they don't think enough about the control system side. 
And that gets me into the next question, which would be, you know, much of today's critical infrastructure systems, they still consist of a lot of legacy equipment originally designed to be perimeter protected or air gapped from unsecure networks. However, many of these are becoming connected over time. So what would you say are the three top challenges facing critical infrastructure asset owners in ensuring that their equipment, machinery, and facilities are secure and remain secure in this new connected reality? Yeah, I think really the top three challenges are, I'm not going to talk about technology at all. It's really culture, people process and policy, and visibility, right? So, you know, organizational culture is probably one of the most important aspects of cybersecurity, maturity, and readiness. You know, within the critical infrastructure, we find massive culture divide between people running the corporate networks and those that are running the industrial or operational networks. And they're just coming at the problem from really two different aspects or two different philosophies, right? You've got IT security professionals really focused on data, system integrity to protect personally identifiable information or intellectual property. And then you got those that are managing operational networks, really prioritizing safety, reliability, and availability above everything else. This could only be fixed with engaged leaders, with accountability, and with you know, those updated policies and governance and training. And we really see this across all sectors within the government. So I think you know, organizational culture is one, and I think it's one of those things that isn't thought about initially, but it really is kind of the first thing that you have to fix. I think, you know, as you just said, David, there's a lot of focus on technology. People think cybersecurity is a technology problem, but really people in process and policy, there's just so much importance there as well. I would say equally important. You just can't optimize a technology or your cybersecurity enterprise unless you have the right people. They have the right training and they're in the right roles and they have the right authority. And that in itself is a big challenge because of the lack of resources out there to handle all of cybersecurity. Yes, 100%. Yeah. People can only succeed if you've got the right you know, processes, the right governance in place, and the right policies, right? And so I think people, process, and policies are incredibly important. And then the third thing I'll say, which does require some technology, is really visibility. Having visibility across your enterprise, that leads to improved asset management, which could lead to increased knowledge of network topology, configuration, which allows the implementation of really enterprise security practices, much better governance across the enterprise. It allows you to establish kind of unified teams, whether you're on the corporate side or the operational side, to really focus on common goals and objectives. And that creates an environment to really reduce duplicative efforts and streamline security functions. In so many places, we see there are security professionals in the corporate network, and then you've got other security professionals on the operations network, and they don't really talk to each other. And so I think that you know pushing those teams together would really reduce duplicative efforts. I also think gaining visibility goes really a long way to helping manage you know, your technical debt and that'll help free up resources to apply to real security practices that actually buy down risk. And in my mind, it really all starts with visibility. If you can't see it, you can't protect it. Right. Agreed. And maybe just on that note, I think the, you're right 100% about the network topology. And I think also given you know some of the recent cases where vulnerabilities have been found inside of equipment, that, that also they need to have that visibility into the equipment itself and into what's running on the equipment so that that's protected as well. So I think you're, you're 100% right. There has to be a very strong 
layer of visibility across the entire organization. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things you asked in the original question was about air gap networks, right? And so my opinion is that an air gap network is, is basically a unicorn, right? With very few exceptions or, you know, very hard to find. You know, many critical infrastructure entities, they'll tell you their operational networks are segmented uh, or that there's an air gap or there's one-way diode. But what we're finding is that more and more information technology is finding its way into the OT environments because of the performance benefits and the efficiencies that IT really brings to optimize and maximize operation. It's a business decision that's being made to optimize and maximize operations. And we're seeing this, you know, when we talk about this, uh, we just released, um, Accenture just released our, our federal technology vision for 2022. And we talk about the connectedness and the more connected devices that are gonna be coming across really all of the technology environments. And there's going to be just an ex exponential increase in new devices and connections. You think about 5G. I mean, 5G is going to greatly expand the attack surface and add far greater complexity and scale to really the security challenges we face now. And one of the things that we have to do is really anticipate the future security challenges in this space, particularly as it applies to the development of new or greenfield critical infrastructure. We have to continuously evolve our security solutions to not only ensure the integrity, reliability, and security of all of these connected technologies, but we also need to ensure the safety and privacy you know, of our people. We just can't design critical infrastructure or critical infrastructure control devices or you know, security devices in the same way that we did in the past. We've got to build in security at the front end and make sure that it's able to operate and not degrade the uh, the reliability or the availability of operations. Agree with you 100%. So to double click on the issue of visibility that you mentioned before, I want to talk a little bit about the, the supply chain issue. So I'm sure most of our listeners are aware of this already, but President Biden's uh, cybersecurity executive order raised the attention, of course, of the need to enhance supply chain security. And together with the work that CISA is doing, it has brought things like ass bombs to, to the forefront. And I'm curious what your view about that with regards to the industrial ecosystem. Where do you see ass bombs coming in and how do you see them playing a role in this future that you envision? Yeah, I mean, I think Executive Order 14028 really laid the groundwork for a lot of the activity that we're seeing now, right? So that came out in May 2021. It was one of those guiding documents that everybody's paying attention to, both in, in government and industry. And it put operational technology in scope, right? I mean, it calls out operational technology. We hadn't seen that in the past. And it really focuses on the importance from a supply chain perspective, you know, on the importance of not only the software supply chain security, but how critical the security of the software development environments are, right? You, you got to focus in on that. And I think, you know, OMB actually just released additional guidance just this past September, really mandating that federal departments and agencies comply with the NIST guidance that came out as a result of 14028, but also mandated that government software vendors attest to complying with, you know, secure software development practices that were really outlined by the government. The memo also advises departments and agencies to consider adding language on contracting that re for requiring S-bombs. Uh, and so that's all really fantastic. And to your point about CISA, I think they've done great work on supply chain, 
for probably the last you know five or so years when it really came into focus. And they've been really working in this space, particularly as it applies to helping industry and to provide you know guidance and policy decisions within the government. And I think in the past year, really a couple of years, says is very you know says is Alan Friedman, right? He's everywhere. Uh, talking about SBOM. He's talking to vendors. He's at every conference that I've been to uh, talking about SBOM. Who's on our podcast. Yeah, I mean, he's really an evangelist for this. But I believe if you're going to sell technology, to the point of your question, if you're going to sell technology, you should pass on assurances to your buyer about the safety and security of that technology. Obviously, there needs to be due diligence on both sides, the supplier and the purchaser, and both need to have programs in place to really manage cyber risk within the supply chain. And SBOM, you know, SBOM is certainly one of those things that should be center to any supply chain risk program. So what tips would you give to cybersecurity professionals who are just starting out in product and device security, specifically in the OT and critical infrastructure areas, as to how to best protect their equipment and devices? And I know you've touched on this a little bit, maybe something more you know, to the professionals? I would say a couple things uh, that in my mind will go a long way and will always be important throughout your career, right? One of them is, you know, get the security basics right before you start focusing on complex challenges, right? We've already talked about visibility, asset inventory. You know, that's a basic thing that you have to have, a valid, you know, up-to-date asset inventory so that you have visibility across your enterprise. And then, you know, kind of the 101 stuff, password management employee awareness and training program, patch management. Those are just the basics. But um, but you'll find, particularly in small business, uh, that those basics aren't, aren't being applied to. And if you think about utilities and critical infrastructure, you know, I think there's like 16,000 water treatment facilities across America. There's like 3,000 rural or municipal electricity transmission and distribution uh, facilities that are providing really, in some ways, necessary and life-saving functions to people. And so those basics are, are very important. They don't have the resources to really apply really complex, robust cybersecurity practices. And so I think focusing on those basics is going to be important. If you're an engineer uh, or you're a planner operations manager, build rapport uh, with your cybersecurity colleagues, right, across your enterprise. Share information, teach them about your environment and why it's different than the corporate network. Uh, run exercises with them. You know, make sure that they understand your policies, uh, your processes, how you run playbooks, and things like that. And then exercise everything. Exercise your processes, regardless of how small it is. Exercise your communications and your decision protocols. You have to do that in my mind throughout your career, regardless of whether you're first starting out or you're somebody on a board. Perfect. A lot of food for thought. So I have another question, more of a personal question, if you don't mind. So your, your career has taken you in some very, very interesting directions. Can you share one of the experiences that really sticks out in your mind as, as the most rewarding? Sure. I mean, I think it's obvious my career wasn't something that was planned at the beginning. <laughs> you know, it's taking advantage of opportunity, taking advantage of network, and quite frankly, you know, from my perspective, you know, working hard and, and, and taking chances. When I went into combat control, you know, that was something that I volunteered to do day seven of basic training. I didn't know what it was, but yep, let's do this. And as a combat control, I was able to deploy really all over the globe, the Middle East, South America, Eastern Europe, 
you know, I've had the honor of working alongside really some of the most elite special operators in the world, like pararescuemen and Navy SEALs and U.S. Special Forces. I was assigned to the Australian uh, and the New Zealand SAS at one point in my career over in the Middle East. And that was all awesome. But when I was younger in my life, uh, you know, my first deployment was in 1990 uh, to Desert Storm, about really four months after I arrived at my initial unit. We, uh, we deployed, uh, flew to King Fahd International Air- Airport. I was there for, uh, for, for a number of, number of months and then worked up in northern Saudi Arabia at a couple airfields. And I was deployed for about seven months. In January 1991, Spirit 03, which is an AC-130 gunship, was shot down in the early morning uh, hours supporting some troops in contact uh, in a contested area. The gunship actually got shot down, lost power, but the pilot was able to get it uh, to the Persian Gulf, and that's where it actually went down into the Persian Gulf. And so once we identified uh, where the plane was uh, in, in the water and all that, we, we put a team together, and I was actually one of the four divers. We put two two-man teams together, and I was one of the four divers that dove on that to recover the remains of really that heroic air crew that saved lives. And so, you know, being a part of that team, helping to get those those men home, it's probably the most important thing I've done in my professional career. Wow. That's a very special story. Thank you for that. Amazing story. I'd like to shift gears a little bit, but after that story, it's a... I feel a little bit strange doing that, but we'll try. So actually, the last question we have for today. So my first car was a 1974 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. And as I recall, yours was a 1974 Chevy Nova. So can you please share with our listeners the story of how you got that car? Sure. You know, my grandfather owned a cattle ranch uh, called the Big E. Um, his name was Estel, so it was the Big E Ranch, and then uh, there was a bunch of different satellite kind of properties where we had cows and and cattle and things like that. And so I spent a lot of my after school time and a lot of my summers from the time that I was like eleven till I was about uh, sixteen working for my grandfather. Whether it was you know baling hay, rounding up cattle, feeding the cattle, hanging and repairing fences, I worked for him, and he paid me a dollar an hour. That was the going wage for a 12, 13, 14-year-old working for my my grandfather. When I was about 15, I guess the summer before I turned 16, I came came home one day and there was a 1974 Chevy Nova, green, puke green Chevy Nova sitting in in, in the driveway. And my mom had told me that my grandfather bought me the car. And I was just ecstatic. I'm like, awesome. Bench seats. It was a column shift, three-speed. You know, really everything a 15-year-old could ever want in a car, right? Pink, <laughs> green, black vinyl seats that in the Florida sun would get to about 180 degrees. Yeah, and it, it was it was awesome. But, you know, as I said, my grandfather paid me a dollar an hour. He normally paid me every week. My grandfather was very on time with, with paying. But, you know, about three weeks goes by and I haven't been paid. And so one day, Saturday or whatever, I was sitting there at lunch and I said, hey, can I get paid? And he said, sure, you get paid. And so he asked me to come into his office at his house. And I came in there and he broke out this yellow legal tablet paper pad. And I'm looking at it and it has the VIN number. It has the make and model of my car. And it has every hour I've worked since he bought me that car. 
and how I'm buying the car down. So I worked 1,500 hours uh, <laughs> to buy that car because it was $300. <laughs> um, yeah, I had that car for uh, throughout my uh, my high school uh, years. Wow, that's great. And he really instilled in you the work ethic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, my grandfather worked extremely hard and he instilled that certainly in me. It taught me how to be a lot of things. I think resilient was is, is probably one of the most important and to value hard work. It's probably the best way to make sure you, you really take care of that car. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure that's why I remember it. Yes. <laughs> Among other reasons. So Rick, I think it's a perfect uh, way to, to end this conversation. It's been uh, an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for both the personal and the, and the professional insights. We learned a lot and I'm sure uh, our listeners uh, did as well. So thank you. Thank you very much, Rick. Well, thank you very much. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.